0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, how are you, man?
1: Uh, I am. I'm back in the U.S. of A., JD, and um, it, it's that's lovely. I'm back in my own office. I'm at my own desk. I I am recording on my own equipment in a in a comfortable, relaxed relatively spacious atmosphere and i am in the right time zone for talking to you and for most yeah, of the news that we cover
0: that's nice for me too because usually ed the truth is the fact of the matter is that usually you are you have been in england for a month and that means that like we are just we're missing each other we're not talking to each other and uh and that's been tough so I'm, it puts I'm a really strain on it. any marriage to you know be apart <laughs> for that long time <laughs> I'm really glad that you're back. Is all I'm going to say. That I'm really glad that you're back, and I'm welcome back to America, and uh, and all of that. But we have so much news that we want to talk about that we can't be just talking about you, Ed, um, or Britannia, or whatever it is that you're trying to be talking about right now.
1: Interesting. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Because um, you know Ed as well as I do that um, there was a, a, a significant well. There was a, the, the Roman pontiff, the bishop of Rome, the uh, vicar of Christ on earth, uh, Pope Francis himself, peace be upon him, um, issued this week uh, a
1: rescript. No, no, it was a proprio.
0: No, it was a rescript.
1: No, I'm looking at it right now. Littera Apostolica in Forma sentence. di moto Proprio del Somo Pontifice Francesco Il Derito Nativo. That's what you're talking about, right? The new motu proprio on on the on the assets and property of the Holy See and subsidiary entities. Why? You're you're not talking about the new law Francis issued this week clarifying no, the legal status right. of the money. No, that's right. The Roman
0: Pontiff issued a new money thing, and to be, I'm going to be perfectly honest. When did that happen? The Pope issued this week a new motu proprio pertaining to Vatican money. When was that?
1: Uh, I mean, it was released today. Day today being Thursday the twenty third, but it's dated the twentieth. So I guess that's. Monday.
0: But I'll be honest. Ever since I read this morning in starting seven that this had come out, I've been waiting for a pillar explainer on it, so I wouldn't have to read it. And I haven't gotten a pillar explainer on it yet. And I haven't gotten a pillar explainer on it yet. So what do what do I what what do I need to know here? The Pope issued a new money rule today, there's th- Thursday. There's not a to lot
1: know? to explain. I mean, I haven't written an explainer on it because, frankly, there isn't enough to justify an entire explainer. I might drive by it in my newsletter tomorrow, but. What it is is this, is the Pope has published a, what have we got here, Um, a four paragraph uh, in the legal, not grammatical sense, a four paragraph law basically making very, very clear that anything owned by a subsidiary of the Holy See, that is an organization, a charitable arm, uh, you know, whatever it may be, that is ultimately dependent upon the Holy See or one of its departments is, properly speaking, the temporal goods of the Holy See proper and under the full, immediate, universal jurisdiction of the Holy Father, as indeed all ecclesiastical goods are. Um I mean, I'll be honest with you, I don't really understand on the face of it if you if you accept that this proprio is and it is technically a moto proprio, but if you understand if you if you accept that it is in spirit, actually a proprio that this was done Sort of suo sponte by the Holy Father, without prompting of his own,
0: of his own proprio,
1: of his own proprio, without any you know prompting or provocation or in response I to do anything. I accept
0: that. Is there any reason I shouldn't accept that? Now I'm wondering if I shouldn't be accepting that.
1: Well, because this isn't a law that you need. This this is basically a law saying what everyone has already known and what is what is already understood. I mean, in um, I'm trying to remember if it was early November or late November. Tell me or early again December.
0: what it said, just in case I wasn't listening. Just in case.
1: All the, I'm I'm having to translate from the Italian because, of course these days we don't get it in Latin, we get it in Italian. Um, all of the goods, movable and immovable, mm-hmm. including liquid assets and titles thereto, which are now or have ever been acquired by in any manner by an institution of the curia or other entity of the Holy See are truly public ecclesiastical goods. And in every other way effectively property of the holy see.
0: Okay so what it says is that when the when departments of the roman curia buy things those things are ecclesiastical goods. That's a very technical term that's important for people to understand if they want to understand what Yes
1: this is and well. it's not just any dicastery of the holy see any sort of legal body set up by a dicastery of the holy see. So you can think about some um, some departments that have a lot to do with, for example, evangelization or charity or or things like that will have subsidiary bank accounts or you know dependent charities or whatever else you might want to call them that you know help forward the work of the curia in one way or another.
0: But could we just explain first what bona ecclesiastica is and why that why that's a technical term and that's important? Ecclesiastical goods are goods which are um, properly speaking the patrimony of the church or which are owned owned by public juridic persons of the church. They are Bona ecclesiastica means church goods, and that's what they are, they're church goods. But what that means, what the consequence of that is, is that ecclesiastical goods are governed by Book 5 of the Code of Canon Law. Those things which are uh, properly designated as ecclesiastical goods, the things which a parish owns, the things which a diocese owns, the things which a seminary owns. You can't just, the bishop or the prefect or the seminary rector or whomever, he can't just go out and sell them at will, or he can't just go out and sort of mortgage them at will, he has to follow the rules for administering them and alienating them, selling them, that are established in the code of canon law. And those rules require a number of kinds of consultations and permissions that he has to undergo in order to do stuff with those goods. So what this is saying is, hey, we already knew that the goods of dioceses are regulated by canon law. The bishop can't just sell off a gigantic piece of property that he has without kind of going through some local process first or maybe even a process at the Vatican. We already knew that the goods of seminaries are ecclesiastical goods and the rector can't just like mortgage to the teeth the seminary building in order to finance some sort of wacky project that he wants to finance. He has to go through a lot of processes first. What this is saying is, hey, the goods of the departments of the Roman Curia are also ecclesiastical goods. They're regulated by book 5 of the code of canon law and so are the goods of their little subsidiary corporations. And that's super interesting. I don't know where you're going with this, but that's super interesting because little subsidiary corporations have an interesting sort of juridic status for many entities in the life of the church.
1: They do. Um, But what I was surprised by is I would have thought this was obvious. Um, The idea that you have to say things that legally are the property of the Holy See are ecclesiastical goods, I I would have thought was stating the obvious. And for example, in late November, early December, I can't remember which, there was another modu proprio, I believe, that came out signed by Pope Francis that basically said all of these similar entities and organizations, subsidiary functions of departments of the curia and connected entities and so on, um, were subject to all of the ordinary financial oversight and controls of any other normal curial department. And you may recall, I, we wrote in our copy at the time that there had been some rumblings that perhaps some people had been treating these, these entities fast and loose. And then we subsequently reported that for example, pillar reader Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia had, um, had turned some monies towards the renovation of his Vatican apartment uh, out of all of so this some
0: monies from a foundation, a sort of pious foundation is that
1: right i a pious foundation is a technical term and i don't know that i'm prepared to invoke it in this sense but let us say funds clearly raised and designated for a charitable purpose um anyway so so there was all of that and and so to see this come out now and the reason i said at the beginning that i question whether this is truly motu proprio by the pope is this is the kind of law you get in oh, answer you think to something. This
0: law is in response to Polyas redirection.
1: No, I don't know that this is in response department. to Polyas thing because that was all settled. Um,
0: Boy, something. wouldn't that be something if the pillar, if reporting from the pillar influenced a norm issued by the Roman Pontiff or an adjustment in regulation issued by the Roman Pontiff in order to address a problem identified by the pillar?
1: That's that's an interesting hypothetical. Um, I I don't know that I think that's what happened in this case though. But it does strike me as something's afoot here. Someone's someone's done something. Someone's been naughty. And I want to know who.
0: I also want to know who. And um, and I think we should try to get to the bottom of it. But I'll tell you, I do think it's sweet that you said, well, I thought it would have been obvious that the uh, goods which are owned by juridic persons are indeed owned by juridic persons. And I'll, I'll tell you why. It, it's, it's nice because um, it is my experience in um, diocesan and curial administration that this has been an issue in the, the life of the church in the United States for quite some time. So for example, okay, so again, what the rule is saying is, hey, if the religious order has this, or oh, excuse me, if the Department of the <laughs> Not Roman that you're Curia... you're immediately
1: thinking of something you've dealt with.
0: I'm going to it. But if the Department of the Roman Curia has a sort of subsidiary civil organization um, that owns stuff, that stuff, from the church's perspective, is owned by the juridic person of the de- of the department and therefore, again, is bound by the norms of Book 5 of the Code of Canon Law. You can't just be doing what you want with it. You have to follow church law on it. Now, here's a, here's a reality that has existed in the life of the church in the United States for quite some time. It has often been the case that religious institutes, religious orders in the United States, have themselves established civil corporations, and those civil corporations have had boards that are... Um, more or less coterminous with the uh, leadership structure of the Pro- the religious institute's province or other juridic identity, perhaps with the addition of a lay person or two on the board, but more or less members, professed members of the religious institute, and has held property pertaining to apostolates of the religious institute in those civil corporations, and then claimed that the religious institute. The one which showed up with the cash to buy the stuff in the first place does not have to go through the ecclesiastical rigmarole to administer its property because the property is owned by the civil corporation and not the juridic person.
1: Oh, well, that that's has, naughty.
0: That is not an uncommon experience. No, yes, it absolutely is naughty. And at various times, the congregation for um, instit- excuse me, the dicastery for institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic <laughs> the dicastery for institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life. Uh, has uh, has aimed to issue correctives to religious institutes in the United States, or aim to tell bishops, "Hey, you know, you really oughtn't just let religious institutes say that they're separate civil corporations, which are in fact holding companies for the, their apostolates, mean that their that their money, which was kind of parked in these things, is not their money." Um, at various times, the congregation has said that, and at various times, the lesson has gone. For the most part unheeded, because what has happened is that the congregate, if either the congregation says it to the religious institute directly, in which case the religious institute says, yeah, 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 we got it. Or the congregation says it to a diocesan bishop and the diocesan bishop says, wait a minute, are you telling me that I should get in a fight with these religious sisters about their money? I, on your behalf, I do not wish to do that. I do not wish to have that fight. I well, I will not do it, and so um, and so the 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 advice has gone unheeded. So there are, you know, in various cases, potentially um, invalid administ- uh, alienations that come from religious institutes effectively forming a civil corporation and parking their money in that civil corporation, and then saying it's outside of the reach of Rome. Do you know the most famous example of that in the history <laughs> of the church in the United States? I do not. The most famous example of that, and something which I'm absolutely convinced is an inalien, invalid alienation of ecclesiastical property, is the creation of a civil board uh, and civil holding company for the property of the Eternal Word Television Network and its affiliated media properties. So
1: interesting. As you,
0: prob- as you probably know, Ed, you know, and I'm not. This is not. A, this is a governance thing. This is not an orthodoxy thing or whatever else. But as you probably know, um, and I didn't even know about the motor proprios, you know. So I'm just. To talking now, but as you probably know, um, EWTN was founded as an apostolate of a Monastery of Religious Sisters in Birmingham, Alabama, most especially as an apostolate of Mother Angelica. What was her last name? I have Risen? no idea. No Mother idea. An- Mother Angelica. You know who I'm talking about. Mother Angelica. I, I know most who you're talking an apostolate about. I of Mother could Angelica, not tell right? you her last name for anything. Yeah. So EWTN was itself kind of a project and a postulate of the Institute, and the Institute's money was initially used, um, and the Institute did some borrowing and some other things. Like the Institute was running the thing vis-a-vis Mother Angelica running the thing as a member of the Institute. But at a certain point when ecclesiastical governance sort of was uh, raising various kinds of questions about EWTN or trying to address certain, you know, when there were bishops who were trying to address certain concerns about EWTN, regardless of the substance of those concerns, what happened is that uh, there was a, at one point a kind of vote, which um, of the board. I wish I remembered the details, but a, a kind of vote of the board, which um, a, which was a, a, a resolution. That, again, I wish I could. I wish I had the details in front of me, but I didn't know we were going to talk about this. At one point, I wrote a paper on it. Actually, a resolution or a board determination that said, effectively, you know, we own this stuff. The institute doesn't own this stuff, and therefore this stuff and and the work that this stuff does is not subject to you know the governance of, the governance of um, ecclesiastical authorities, the diocesan bishop, whatever, whatever, because this is just a civil corporation. And as far as I can tell, again, this is just my observation. As far as I can tell, what happened is basically the apostolate of a religious institute became, if you will, uh, laicized, um, sort of handed over in a manner to. Um, to, uh, to, a lay, to a self-perpetuating lay board and, uh, and therefore sort of claimed for itself that it was outside of the reach of ecclesiastical authorities. But it would also seem to me, and again, having written a paper on this a while ago and, and now somebody's probably going to email me with the details and say, this is what you got wrong, this is what you got wrong. But it would also seem to me, in as much as I remember, that, that from an ecclesiastical perspective, there are real and serious questions about whether the, that was in fact an alienation of the Institute's property. And if it was an alienation of the Institute's property, it was rather; it would seem to me clearly not um, exercised in accord with Book Five of the Code of Canon Law. So it's a very interesting and I think kind of well-known example of that phenomenon that Pope Francis was talking about today. Although in the case of religious institutes and not in the case of um, uh, of decastries one of the reasons I bring that example up is because um, issues pertaining to governance and administration in the life of the Church are, in my observation, um, wholly uh, uh, not um, immediately or definitively correlated to issues pertaining to doctrinal adherence or doctrinal fidelity in the life of the church or whatever. One can be very orthodox and administer things poorly or even in defiance of the law, and one can be, in my observation... Uh, reject, you know, very heterodox, reject the teaching of the church, but in particular cases observe the governing authority of the law with regard to financial administration. In other words, I think we tend to think those things are maybe one-to-one correlated. If you hear someone's trying to skirt the authority of the church, you assume it's because they're heterodox or something like that. But that's just not my observation or experience, that the, that there can't be an immediate correlation like that.
1: Uh, yes, well, yeah. that was, that, I was not expecting that. I was not expecting... It's
0: also true... Sorry, I <laughs> don't mean to throw you for a loop. But it's also true, you know, that arguably many Catholic universities in this country were invalid... invalid that, yeah, in well, Germany that's where I thought you were system. going to go with that. Oh, that's where you thought I was going to go. I don't know why I had the EWTN thing on my mind, except that I've always thought it and haven't always been able to say it, I guess, but um, uh, uh, or had occasion to have a conversation about it or whatever. But um, but I'm pretty sure I wrote a paper about it in Canton Law School. In, in any case... Um, the same thing could be said to be true of of, uh, of a lot of Catholic universities, which at one time were rather definitively the apostolate of um, of their religious institute. And then at a certain point, this happened, you know, to some degree, this can be correlated with Land lakes, but not entirely because they're faithful, you know, Orthodox, so to speak, Catholic universities, which would fit the same bill. But at, at some point along the way, governance and control of the thing was passed from the um, governance and control structure of the Religious Institute, the leadership structure of the Religious Institute, to the to the leadership structure of a self-perpetuating lay, uh, board. And it began by sort of putting the various members of Religious Institutes on the board as ex officio members in various ways, and then eventually the board sort of making a movement to shift that so that the provincial wouldn't exercise control over the board or whatever, whatever. Was that boring to you? Did, you looked...
1: Tired? No, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> with you, I, di- I just... I've never, I've never seen you bite so hard on a, on a financial news item.
0: Oh, I, well, it's absolutely true. I mean, it seems to me that the transfer of university property from the leadership structure of religious institutes to the leadership um, structure of self-perpetuating lay boards is the greatest plundering of the church's patrimony in recent history. I mean, like you had these things which religious institutes owned, which were governed by the church, and then blammo, somebody said, no, we're not going to own them anymore. These boards are going to own them, and we're not even going to have control over the board anymore. We'll sort of be— in the Ignatian spirit or in the Xavieran spirit or in the Franciscan spirit or whatever else, and we'll be around and, you know, it'll be customarily the fact that we're the president of the university or whatever, but effectively many Catholic universities built by, you know, the pennies of immigrants who wanted their kids to be able to get a university education in this country were given away. Um, and if you want to know why they don't have a Catholic identity and ethos and formation and the classroom and all those other things, I think you have to start with the fact that from the perspective of governance, they gave away the religious institute's right to demand that. They gave away in a certain way the church's right to control the purse strings on, on those kind of matters. And that's, I mean, a profound transfer of assets and wealth from the church to not the church. Yeah. And one which is invalid. Yeah. So, so yeah, you wouldn't... It, the point is, you said, I think that would it would be obvious that this would be true, but... In fact, the whole sort of zeitgeist of the American church's history with regard to the the institutionalized apostolists is that it's not true. You want to talk about that, tell you something else is Catholic hospitals. What's a Catholic hospital? Now, the, the situation of Catholic hospitals is extremely complex because religious institutes which used to administer Catholic hospitals have now merged to create these sort of sponsoring public juridic persons, which are overseen by the congregation for institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life, and those sponsoring juridic persons exercise governance rather than the religious institutes, which were originally the apostles. and that transaction, those transfers are valid because the congregation says they're valid. So Catholic hospitals probably are, in a certain way, more corporately Catholic you know, and and regard themselves as being bound to the norms of the church than universities do, but there are certainly handovers of Catholic hospitals to self-perpetuating boards without sort of juridic uh, operbatio as well.
1: Well, okay. So now another thing. I'm just no, uh, I was to say I'm going to cut you off there. Three, three or is your limit. Okay. Uh,
0: as, this is a subject on which this is a financial subject on which I love to go into the weeds. Actually.
1: Yeah. Well, feel free to you know write some stuff about this sometime. I'm fascinated to oh, read yeah. it. I you know um should we talk about some news some more news some we more financial news, news. Anyway, i know we you want to talk about some about... more financial news
0: yeah i want to talk about more financial news but is, didn't you want to say more about the vatican thing
1: well no so the vatican thing i just again what what it what strikes me about this is because we've had recent clarifications of the law along similar lines um hammering home on how entities like this are are subject to the Holy See's own internal financial regulations and oversight and inspection and all of this sort of stuff, sort of auditing norms and things like that. To then get a this law, it seems to me like in early December when Pope Francis issued the thing. Um, oh, I found it. It's December 6th. All right. It was a proprio. I was right. It was a motopropio. Sorry, I've
0: lost you here. Say what now?
1: In December. Thank you. Pope Francis issued a motopropio, um, which was called uh, let me see what the actual title of the thing was. Oh, I'm not even going to try. The, let's just say it's got a long title. But the the bottom line is, he issued a motu proprio, basically clarifying that you know if if a pontifical council, for example, has some subsidiary charitable arms or you know independent civilly incorporated organizations or in whatever jurisdiction, um, all of that is still also subject to the Holy See's normal mechanisms of financial accountability, inspection, auditing, all of that. Now, to get a modu proprio like this, two months, two and a half months later, sounds a lot to me like somebody kicked back and said, "Oh no, we don't. You know, we don't have to. These aren't actually ecclesiastical goods, and you can't make us do this." And and offered a, um, a legal argument. The response to which was this to this week's motu proprio on, on the us nativa. I love that phrase in canon law. In this case, it's in Italian, so it's the diritto nativo, but the birthright of the Church to acquire and use temporal goods uh, in service of of her mission. Um, th- this is basically Pope Francis writing back and saying, "Nay, nay, Mooseface, uh, you you absolutely are going to hand over the documents. You are going to you know we you, you are going to answer the questions or subject yourself to whatever kind of scrutiny it is that they've been resisting." And I really am deeply curious: who's doing this? Who is up to something, JD? There is there. I'm not saying there's thievery afoot, but there's knavery going on well, who somewhere. Is the,
0: who is the neighbor?
1: I don't know. I'm trying to yeah, find better out. Better I yeah. I woke up this morning and read this motu proprio, and I immediately texted three different people in three different Vedic departments and said, "All right, who's been a naughty boy? Tell me. I want to know. I I really want to know because I'm nosy about that sorts of things. But I, you know." It, I find it fascinating, but here's, okay, so speaking of news, like the second thing I want to talk to you about today, because I know that this whole show, all you wanted to talk about was financial affairs, and you wouldn't talk about the trial, which is interesting and ongoing and some interesting now stuff. Now we right.
0: talk about the trial a lot. We talk about the trial a lot.
1: No, we talk about talking about the trial a lot. We never actually do
0: it. <laughs> talk about, talking about talking about a trial, that's just basically 90% of the programming on core TV.
1: That's probably true. Anyway, uh, yeah, but so here's something, so a, a story floated across my desk this morning, from a local NBC affiliate in San Diego, California, saying that a lawsuit has been announced against the Diocese of San Diego, alleging, and this is me quoting from the news report, that the diocese fraudulently transferred real estate into dummy corporations in order to avoid paying out pending legal settlements to hundreds of victims of childhood sexual abuse. Now, this is this is interesting, and the necessary context for this is that uh, last week or the week before, Cardinal McElroy of San Diego basically told everyone in the diocese to buckle up because he was going to declare bankruptcy. He didn't say he definitely right. was; he said was looking like. I mean, he he basically said we're going to do this. He said so, we're
0: going to declare bankruptcy in a couple months. I'm just letting you know right now.
1: Exactly. Um, In the interim, presumably, he's going to the Holy See to get the requisite permission Permission to declare bankruptcy.
0: But tell me again, what does the lawsuit
1: say? The lawsuit alleges that the diocese fraudulently transferred real estate to dummy corporations in order to avoid paying out pending legal settlements to hundreds of victims of childhood sexual abuse. How did it do that? Well, it sounds bad, doesn't it? Sounds Um, bad. Yeah.
0: Did it do that? When Um, did it do it?
1: Well, it doesn't actually... It it doesn't give... um, It doesn't give... McElroy. Was it McElroy? I assume it is McElroy because it seems to concern the last several years of administration in the diocese. Um, it, the, you know, the news report I'm reading is, is shy on specific dates and instances, but the thrust of it is this has been going on for some time, and I know Cardinal McElroy has been the Bishop of San Diego for an excess of eight 10 years, years there.
0: now. No, he's been the Bishop of San Diego for eight years. Eight years? Since
1: 2015. 2015. I'm sure that that time period will be covered by the suit, but here's what's interesting. Um this is the response of the art of the diocese to the announcement of this lawsuit since the founding of the diocese in 1936 under canon law the assets of each parish have been separate and independent from the diocese over 10 years ago long before a relevant bill in the state of California which basically the statute of
0: limitations window which allows people to
1: make lawsuits exactly long before that bill was introduced the diocese began the process of formalizing in civil law the separate legal status of each parish and its assets including recording proper legal title for each parish to its own real estate the diocese has a profound obligation and a moral duty to use its own assets to equitably compensate survivors as Cardinal McElroy said in his recent letter announcing that bankruptcy was under consideration
0: wait I'm sorry the diocese, so the lawsuit. The it seems to me
1: says, the lawsuit is alleging that the diocese is trying to shield its material assets from being given to claimants in sexual abuse cases. What the diocese seems to be saying is no, we're not setting up dummy corporations and trying to hide our assets. The diocese is and has been doing for more than a decade attempting to make its civil structures reflect the canonical oh, legal ten
0: reality. Oh, 10 years ago, they did a parish incorporation project or a parish mm-hmm. title transfer project. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh.
1: <laughs> and this is why it's very really important funny. that dioceses do this from okay, the Okay, we should talk about what happened. Okay, so. Yeah. You see, I knew many, you were going to like this story.
0: Okay, so here's the here's what sounds like the deal to me. This is super interesting to me. Uh, so the lawsuit says that the diocese, how many pieces of property?
1: It doesn't. I'm I'm going from a I'm going just from a network Ballpark, television. How many
0: pieces of property does it?
1: It doesn't, JD. This is network television. They don't have details. They don't have understanding. <laughs> this is. The, I'm amazed well, they managed to, to spell San it. Diego correctly.
0: I you it, wanted to talk about it, so let's talk. about I
1: it. want to talk about the premise.
0: Okay, so having done half a second's worth of googling here, the lawsuit says that the diocese transferred at least 291 real estate parcels to its parishes in a bid to conceal assets. Okay, so here's what happened.
1: Here's what happened is the parishes in canon law are their own proper juridic persons. Thank you. Parishes
0: in canon law are their own proper juridic persons. We've talked about this on the show before. But but juridic persons are church corporations, right? Um, Some juridic persons exist by divine will itself, and some juridic persons uh, exist by the uh, the will of the church, which is to say ecclesiastical administrators have set them up. So every diocese is a church corporation. The seminary is a church corporation. The religious order, the province of the religious order, is a church corporation called a juridic person, and every parish is a juridic person. Why? Every parish is a juridic person because it's not a branch office of the diocese or an apostolate of the diocese. This is kind of the opposite of the the Vatican thing. It's not an apostolate of the diocese; rather, it is its own wholly existing real entity um, of Catholics. A, 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 a not a portion of the people of God, but what is the phrase?
1: Uh it is. It is a. A stable
0: community of the Christian faithful. There you go. Entrusted to a pastor as a proper pastor. Yeah, a parish is a stable community of the Christian faithful entrusted to a pastor as its proper pastor. It's a canon. You can look it up. It's a silly one, but that's what it is. Um, A parish is its own thing, a stable community of the Christian faithful, not just a branch of the diocese or something like that, but really existing. And thus, it has juridic personality. It has a corporate nature in the context of the church's law. Since the... 1800s or early 1900s, the Holy See has been telling American dioceses how important that is, that parishes are their own thing in canon law, and that therefore they should be their own thing in civil law. Is that right, Ed?
1: Yes, they must be their own thing in civil law, because it is important that the civil law reality reflect the actual reality of how the church is structured and that right, and this is why for example we have railed uh, at least I have railed before on this podcast about the handful of dioceses in this country which remain incorporated civilly as corporation sole meaning everything is just the bishop's property and, the
0: handful of dioceses and parishes which remain incorporated as one thing a corporation yeah. sole because it's not bad for a diocese the diocese of oil city to itself be a corporation sole a corporation you know, holy and entirely administered by the bishop, but it is not good for the diocese and the parishes to be one civil corporation administered wholly and entirely by the bishop. Why? Because the bishop is not the pastor of the parishes. The pastor is the pastor of the parishes, and uh, and therefore they're separate things.
1: Yeah, so Very separate things. And you get it, and there are all sorts of things in law in the church that separate Entities from each other and their assets from each other. The pastor of
0: a parish can sue the diocese in an ecclesiastical context. He can and has
1: done. I've participated done, in those right? and yep. we won, and it was fun. Right? Okay. So the which pastor is why of I can never go back to that particular the diocese can... in the UK, but never mind. <laughs> the um, pastor of the parish, on behalf
0: of the parish, not personally, but on behalf of the parish, can sue the diocese, quad diocese, make a recourse against it, mm-hmm. petition for damages, et cetera, et cetera. It's a legal entity in the church's legal system. Absolutely. As the Holy See has said you you need to have civil legal systems which reflect that. And so the first and more the to said, the point,
1: beca- and the, one of the many reasons why the civil legal system needs to reflect the canonical reality is it's important that, you know, when, for example, lawsuits like this say, oh, well, the, the, the bishop, the cardinal in this case, is trying to hide assets. This is his money. This is the diocese's money and assets, and he's trying to hide it for us. It's not. The bishop of yeah. San Diego, the archbishop of he
0: doesn't control the assets of the parish. He can't call up Father Pastor and say, Father Pastor, uh, I'm coming by, write me a check, and uh, I'm out of cash, write me a check for 20K and make it out to cash, you know, or he can't say, Father, Pastor, I want you to put all your money into uh, new missile. Well, I suppose he could tell them they have to use certain missiles, but he, he can't tell them, you know, Father, Pastor, I want you to, be- I'm buying this piece of property or I mean, let I'm me, selling let me, this piece let me, of property.
1: Let me, or- let, me, let me give an example.
0: Say, you, a par- that good.
1: say a parish owns some property that it's been left to the parish. And that property, you know, the, in addition to the the church building itself, the parish hall, the rectory where the priest lives, there's also a building with, say, five or six apartments in it. You know, it's a little it's a mini block of apartments. And the purpose and that building was left to the parish as a juridic entity with the purpose of, well, the income from those rent from the rents in those apartments will help fund the parish and will keep it going. So this parish will never run out of cash. And, you know, we can survive things like, I don't know, a pandemic where the collection plate disappears for a year, you know, stuff like that. And the diocese comes along and says, Ooh, we're a little shy of cash right now. Um, we, we're going we're to take that building um, and we're going to use the income from those rents for a different project that we think is very worthy and noble. Can't do that because it's not their property. It is, properly speaking, the property of the parish. And the diocese can't come in and, I, I don't know, taking a hypothetical example, say, well, we're going to basically order you as the, as the pastor of this parish to accept a less than market rent. For right, exactly. Four yeah, of those that's exactly right. flats we're we going to park our ca- retired Catholic priests. Catholic
0: Charities in. needs – you You have a school that you're not using. Sure, you could rent it out and that could support sort of religious education in the parish or something like that. But Catholic Charities needs a location for its thing. So you're going to rent that to Catholic Charities and they're going to give you a 100 bucks a year. Right. And if you don't like it too bad. No, why? why? Why can't the diocese do that? Because the parish is its own reality, a a stable community of the Christian faithful entrusted to a pastor as his proper pastor. So in 1911, the Holy See told the bishops of the United States, hey, because the parish is its own reality, and because uh, that's true in canon law, and because you can't just do all those things that Ed and J.D. just said, uh, what you need to do is to make sure that when you're setting up parishes um, legally there in the United States, which is all the frontier practically in 1911, when you're setting up parishes legally, um, you need to make sure that the legal structure reflects this reality. You can't. The bishop can't, just as Ed said, own everything in, in civil law because that's not true in canon law and that's going to cause us problems. So that was 1911. Come around 2002, a lot of dioceses said, hey, that's true. The Holy See was right about that. We really do need to make sure that what's true in canon law is true in civil law, that our diocesan and parish structures... Reflect reality, um, reflect canon law, reflect how we engage them. And so, a lot, um, and the reason for that was I mean, we do have to say the reason why many dioceses in the early 2000s began to do the projects I'm about to describe is because dioceses started getting sued. um, And when dioceses started getting sued, uh, and in some cases declaring bankruptcy, bankruptcy judges wanted to know what their assets were and were seeing, oh, the bishop owns everything, including the parish property, so the parish property must be the asset of the bishop, and therefore the diocese. So dioceses started saying, wow, we need to do this thing that the Holy See told us to do 90 years ago, and uh, which for the most part they'd said like, yeah, yeah, and then not done it. It is not my sense that they didn't do it because the bishop even necessarily wanted in most cases to maintain control. It's my sense that dioceses didn't do it because... It's a gargantuan project, and it's just so much easier when the bishop, you know, when push isn't coming to shove. It's so much easier when the bishop owns things, and more importantly, it's so much easier to leave things how they are than it is to change.
1: It's much easier to not fix the roof, JD.
0: It's much easier to not fix the roof, exactly. And so for a long time, this until it starts
1: raining. Until it starts
0: raining really hard. So come around 2002, 2003, a lot of dioceses said, we need to do this thing and make sure that, indeed, the parish's assets belong to the parish, that we're not holding title to all of them, or, you know, that at least we're not holding sort of bare title to them, and, uh, and that um, the legal structures in place are such that what belongs to the parish belongs to the parish, and what belongs to the diocese belongs to the diocese, and anybody can tell that, and a court can tell that, and... If we haven't been acting like that in certain ways, if the bishop has been exercising prerogatives which would undermine that, which would pierce the corporate veil between the diocese and the parish, we need to get serious about making sure that we have processes and procedures which reflect our canonical reality and civil law. So diocese started undergoing transfer projects. And transfer projects, I have worked on transfer projects. I I worked on one from soup to nuts, you know, starting to finish. It took a couple years of my life and I have helped with others. Transfer projects are bare. You have to sort of, Figure out with civil lawyers what is the structure that the law of this state allows for that most effectively or or that most plausibly reflects the the canonical status of the parish. So what kind of civil law structure should the parish have? And then you have to kind of figure out, okay, what if we have other things like quasi-parishes or missions? What are they – legally and how are we going to do that and then you have to figure out okay that's fine but the relationship between bishop and pastor is governed by canon law so how are we going to what legal structure could we use or what legal reality could we use instrument could we use to ensure that while we're demonstrating the difference between parish and diocese we're also in as much as we can enshrining the legal relationship between parish pastor and bishop in law okay what what does our state allow for that etc etc so you got to do all this kind of research and then you got to build the right kind of parish statutes if you didn't have any, even though canon law said you're supposed to have any, and then you got to build the right kind of civil governing documents for the parish, and then you got to build the right kind of relational documents, and then you got to have a signing day. Signing day is fun, where all the pastors have to come and sign a whole ton of documents, which are kind of creating new legal entities or whatever. But you also, if the diocese was owning civilly the parish property on behalf of the parish effectively, you have to figure out a way to transfer that property to these legal entities of the parishes. Without triggering a gigantic tax consequence, a major sort of tax event, and without doing something which might seem to be merely asset shielding, you know, that you're creating a bunch of false corporations, dummy corporations in order to shield your assets as the Diocese of San Diego is accused of. Now, different dioceses take different approaches to that. Some dioceses said, well, we're going to do something called a declaration of trust, where we formally declare that we are holding all these properties in trust for the parishes and for the beneficial use of the parishes, and that will give them some legal protection. Some did an actual honest-to-God transfer, all of these things. The Diocese of San Diego, it sounds like, went through this transfer process, and in the course of this transfer process—
1: It started raining.
0: Yeah, it started raining. They're getting sued now, and these litigants have popped up to say, oh, actually, all of that was fraudulent asset hiding. Now, it was asset— protecting. But the reason the dioceses were moving to protect those assets is because from the canonical perspective, since time immemorial, or at least the fourth century, those were the parish's assets and not the diocese's assets. And and so the diocese, whatever was going to happen with its own legal liability, wanted to make sure that parish A wasn't going to lose everything because of the bad action of the pastor in Parish B and the bad action of the bishop who oversees both of them. You know, they wanted to make sure that parish A was protected from the liability of parish B and from the diocesan bishop. And that's because the church regards parish A as its own thing. That's not a fraud. That's just our self-understanding.
1: Thank you for coming to J.D.'s TED Talk, everyone.
0: Well, anyway, so that's the deal, but that doesn't sound like it's what these plaintiffs are claiming,
1: huh? No, the plaintiffs are claiming something else. But I mean, this is, the, you you get these lawsuits filed. I mean, you, know who, you know who got beaten around the head about this, but hard, back in the original 2002 era of all this, was was Cardinal Dolan. We will
0: talk about who got beaten about the head or the beating of Cardinal Dolan around the head right after this word from our sponsor.
1: This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Decided Excellence Catholic Media. Decided Excellence Catholic Media is a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines. There are parishes all over the country that have partnered with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to publish their own parish magazine. Parishioners love them. The magazine communicates the good works of the parish, strengthens community, and has even brought parishioners back to Mass. What does a parish magazine offer that a bulletin or a social media presence doesn't? Well, they can mail the magazine to 100% of registered parishioners, not just those who attend Mass and not just those who grab a bulletin or those who follow them on social media. It can also reach non-registered, non-practicing Catholics who live within the parish boundaries and invite them back to parish life. You don't have to worry about it getting lost in social media algorithms. You don't have to worry about reducing the message to make it fit in a social media post.
0: How does it work? Each magazine features a family from the parish and can also highlight parish ministries. The parish can produce its own evangelization and catechesis content and can supplement from the extensive Dedicated Excellence Library with articles from Bishop Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio, and more. Decided Excellence's editorial and design teams will guide you through the publication process each month and help ensure the content is professional and attractive. The Decided Excellence production team will train a parish representative to organize content which is sent to a staff of professional designers and editors. The production team ensures that the magazine is beautiful and high in quality. Visit DecidedExcellence.com parish. That's DecidedExcellence.com parish to learn more. Talk to your priest, your parish staff, and your fellow parishioners about bringing a parish magazine to your parish today. And we're back, and and it has been brought to my attention during the course of the commercial break that I have been talking a lot. These are subjects first the hospital thing, and then this. These are subjects. And the university that are really, thing, the, the TV thing. That's what I mean. The university thing, the TV thing, that this. And uh, and I, it has been brought to my attention that I have been talking a lot, and uh, so and and uh, and I that's do not fine, wish to be. just. No, it's
1: no, good. no!
0: It didn't seem. I'm not too sure if it's fine.
1: No, it's perfectly fine. And you were you you were happy and engaged in talking about money, which is something that always makes me happy. When I can get you on the subject <laughs> of church finances and and fully got hold of your attention, it's a wonderful thing, and it's only for my benefit and the edification of the ladies and gentlemen listening at home.
0: But so, now I want to hear about this. I don't know about this Cardinal Dolan thing at well, no. all. So
1: when, obviously, one of the worst offenders um, in the sort of Episcopal negligence and bad behavior and also personal conduct uh, in the history of the U.S. Church was, you will remember, Rembert Weakland.
0: Yes, Archbishop Weakland, I remember.
1: Yes, he was a very naughty man, an incorrigibly naughty man, you might say. <laughs> um, and he cost the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, which he led for a number of years, quite a lot of money. Um, and at one point, Cardinal Dolan, then Archbishop Dolan uh, of Milwaukee, as he was, uh, was left to to try and clean up some of the mass after Weakland was finally uh, allowed to, to go out to graze. And one of the things that he came under enormous criticism for was there was, um, a, a, a pot of money that was, as far as it was civilly incorporated, the, the assets and goods belonging to the archdiocese, but it was for the maintenance of Catholic cemeteries. Hmm. And as you will know, under the provisions of Canon law, including book five of the blessed code of Canon law, um things like cemeteries are required to have their own stable patrimony for their maintenance, and people leave money to them, and people buy plots in Catholic cemeteries, and the reason you pay for it, and the reason you pay some amount of money for it, is to contribute to the perpetual maintenance thereof. And so he had to, as Archbishop of Milwaukee, and again, I'm, I'm not operating from notes here, this is my best recollection of what happened at the time, but Cardinal Dolan got a lot of flack for he was trying to, quote-unquote, hide money in the cemetery, basically, Um, and what he was doing was basically trying to have recognized in civil law, what had always been the canonical reality, but had not been properly reflected in the church of civil incorporation, which was, yeah, there was this account with a lot of money in it for the perpetual maintenance of Catholic cemeteries in the archdiocese and people had been paying into it and contributing to it and leaving money to it and things like that expressly for that purpose. And it was actually not canonically possible for the archbishop to use it for any other purpose. It wasn't his money. He was bound legally, canonically, to abide by the purposes of that fund, but it was not reflected in civil law. And when he tried to get it reflected in civil law, people lost their ever loving minds at him and basically said, you are trying to deprive the survivors of clerical sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee from their due. And you're trying to do it by, you know, hiding the money in graveyards. Wow. And that was not what he was doing. And, you know, eventually that was reasonably- so what happened. Well, he was made Cardinal Archbishop of New York. <laughs> okay. Spoiler alert.
0: But I mean, how, how is was it resolved? In I,
1: as best I recall, he, he, he did it successfully, but people were just mad as hell about it because that's yeah. what it looked like to, well, that was the argument that's being put forward by the lawyers on the other side. And that was how most of the, I mean, I don't want to say necessarily local TV news affiliates would have portrayed it, but I mean, I have to understand that their take wouldn't have been terribly nuanced or canonically informed. Um, but no, I mean he got through in the end. But it, 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 you know, he took a lot of heat for it. It's not a popular thing for bishops to do if you are trying to fix the roof while it is raining, right? Which is why it is important that these things should have been done in 1911, when it probably would have been a lot easier.
0: But it sounds like so in in San Diego, did Cardinal McElroy, was, was, did Cardinal McElroy oversee the transfer process, or was it did it precede him? Was it Bishop Brahm, I guess.
1: Or um. Well, you're saying he got there in twenty fifteen.
0: Yes, yeah, so like May or their 20, statement
1: is saying over ten years ago. So I have to assume that while perhaps Cardinal McElroy was, you know, dotting some I's, crossing some T's, and uh maybe doing a bit of the cleanup, the vast majority of this would I presume have been done or at least put in train before he arrived.
0: Flores, that was his that was his name. Oh Bishop Brahm and then Bishop Flores. Very briefly. But I
1: mean it doesn't matter if you know the person of the bishop is the person of the bishop, whether there's right. there's no distinction between this one, that one, the other one. It's yeah. all. It's all as far as the lawyers and the and the court, civil courts are concerned. The bishop, the person of the bishop, who is, you know, the one responsible.
0: So, Ed, how do you think this lawsuit will play out? Uh, will it just be dismissed?
1: I don't know. I don't know, JD. And the reason I don't know is, I mean, I'm clear on what I think the law should be able to do, and you know, given that there is precedent of other dioceses doing this, and that there is, you know, um, that there is the the obvious. Evidence you can present in court about, well, no, this is the church's canonical structure. And it's always been this. But dioceses have also, in some places, I think, lost on cases like this because they have been told, you know, the defense that the diocese mounts is, well, look, we're, you know, we're just trying to conform our civil structures to our internal governing canonical requirements. But that the argument says, well, if you took those seriously, you would have done it in 1911 and you didn't. So, therefore, you're only choosing to adhere to this now when it's putting you at some financial risk. And that shows that it's not really a legitimate question of internal religious governance. It's just a question of, you know, you are in fact just doing it now to stop these assets being available um for assignation by the court in, in settlements. So I don't know how it'll go and I have no idea how these things work in California if this is the sort do lawsuits go before tri- jury trials in, in California? Is it bench? I don't know. I presume
0: I don't I, I presume you can have a jury trial if you want one, based upon Aaron Brockovich.
1: I this is an unpopular take for me. I I I I the idea that you you get juries deciding civil suits I think is insane. I I, I this is I I've never been a believer in the jury system. I don't I don't
0: well. For criminal trials as well? I
1: no. If I if I god forbid I should ever find myself on trial for my life, I don't want 12 people off the street anywhere near on making that call. Please give me a well-informed panel of judges so I can at least argue the law and I don't have to worry about who's listening to their iPod and you know, like, you got to be joking. So in our
0: legal system... Have you ever been in a jury room? No, I actually was just talking with my family about this because we were having a little family birthday party on Tuesday night. My nephew's birthday was on Wednesday, but you can't really have a birthday party on Ash Wednesday. So we we're having a little birthday party on Tuesday night and uh, someone was saying that they had just gotten a jury summons and uh, about half of the room said that they... Uh, go to their jury summonses and about half of us said we have never gone to our jury summonses with no attendant consequences thereof and uh and and, and half were shocked by that and felt that we were bad citizens and such you are bad and citizens
1: um that's that's true. You are shirking your, your duty <laughs> I, It's
0: true you do have to spread the civic responsibility out in a democracy and we didn't do it but there I,
1: I have done jury duty and nothing nothing has I mean my faith in democracy has always been pretty iffy but yeah. i tell you what it's hard not to have even what little faith i had shaken by what i saw in those jury rooms i mean my... did you get a case did he catch oh yeah catch case? i caught a case i i had the case of a young man who had been um apprehended with uh as part of a a a loose confederation of other young men who had uh, used a firearm to remove the property from a store that primarily vended in precious metals and gemstones
0: armed robbery of a Jewelry store. Yes, the case of the armed robbery in the jewelry store. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. It seemed like a pretty open and shut case to me, seeing as they had it all on camera, had some fingerprints everywhere, found the stolen goods, and the the weapon at issue, uh, more or less in the possession of of the defendant who was on trial. But that uh, wasn't good enough for some of the people in the room I was with. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I was, okay. uh, was. It was it was a worrying thing. I I'll don't tell want you what
0: though. In our legal system, and this is where, um, you know, in in the civil legal system, you have a jury trial or whatever. In our legal system, it is often possible
1: to Wait, when you say our, do you mean canonical?
0: Yeah, the church's legal system. No, I I I don't know. I thought maybe you meant American. I I don't know. No, I think of the one which governs me mostly, which I feel most bound to, which is the church's legal system. In the church's legal system, and, and, and by the way, the church's legal system is not by virtue of being the church's legal system, infallible or something like that. And so one can no. criticize. It's not the same as criticizing Catholic doctrine. But in our legal system, the judge of a particular penal case might often be the legislator. And in fact, the ultimate judge of any penal case is the supreme legislator. There is rightly no separation of powers in Holy Mother Church because both their own pontiff and the person of the bishop are the vicar of Christ in their respective, one for the universal church and one for his particular church. But I'm not sure that as a legal matter, there aren't certain obstacles that are created when there is no separation between the judicial authority of a society and its legislative authority.
1: Um,
0: I like very much the notion of an independent judiciary, even if it's sort of probably a fantasy.
1: Well, you do have – we do. We, no, hang on. We have you, – you have an ultimate font of governing authority in the church, uh, both at the diocesan and the universal level. The, the person of the Holy Father is the supreme executive legislator and judge. Uh, in the governance of the church. and uh, in the diocese the bishop is also the, the executive legislator and, and the supreme judge. But the exercise of those three separate functions are very carefully delineated in the governance of the church. We have might be exercised
0: might be exer- judicial authority might be exercised vicariously. But not necessarily.
1: Uh, not necessarily. I do know some bishops who, who who hear their own marriage tribunal cases, for example, at least the Processus Brevi, where they, they hear them themselves.
0: Or penal cases. I mean, for penal cases, right? So the bishop himself is the one who decides whether yeah. the thing will have a trial or an administrative penal process in which he, the I, legislator,
1: is I, I don't know that that's a. Well, you say he, the legislator. I, the middle part of the Venn diagram of bishops who have actually promulgated law. In their diocese and are trying penal cases in their diocese on the law that they themselves promulgated, I think is is very small. I if if there's more than one and I couldn't even think of one myself, I would be surprised. But I don't know that I agree with you. And I tell you for why, J.D., is because so much of um so much of argumentation in law as you know and so many appeals in law are the on the proper interpretation of a norm of a given law and if the and the legislator is our legal system says the legislator is the ultimate interpreter of the law and so it should be this is this is how it ought to be now in other jurisdictions and i will give you an example uh that so so let's talk about parliament for a moment shall we jd let's talk about the i'd love to Kingdom. talk about
0: parliament for a moment
1: so there obviously you have a head of state the The reigning the sovereign King Charles, yes, Charles the Long may he reign, etc. Um, and laws are promulgated in his name. The government, the executive branch, is appointed by him and governs in his name. Uh, any laws passed by Parliament have to achieve the royal fiat if they are to take force of law. They have to have the sovereign signature for them to become law. And
0: fiat, co- voluntas, parliament, eh?
1: Yeah. Um and and again the you know the 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 judges sit in the name of the crown that is a crown court. Now, here's an interesting thing. In the in the the ultimate constitutional premise of the constitutional monarchy uh that is the United Kingdom is the sovereignty of parliament that although you have three relatively distinct in practice branches of government although the separation of the executive and the legislature is very murky it best, uh, but all with a common sort of font of authority in the crown, um, you do have parliamentary sovereignty, that the will of parliament is trumps all else, that that's how it is, um, and that the legislature there is the ultimate interpreter of law. But if the law is interpreted, you still have judicial review that you can appeal the, the interpretation of a law in a court system and the judges can interpret the law. But if they make an interpretation that parliament is not happy with, it is to Parliament to say, no, we're going to pass an act clarifying that that is the wrong interpretation. And this is how cases like that should go. This is how the law should be read. And I don't know that I think it's necessarily a bad thing to have the legislator be the judge if it basically short-circuit a bunch of um, legal appeal and argumentation that primarily hinges on, well, how should a law be interpreted? Well, the one who's ultimately, the men's legislator should be the ultimate interpreter of the law. That the... You know the law is a function of the legislator, and the legislator knows what he means by the law. Presumably, mm-hmm. do you not think? I do. Okay. Well, so that 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 answers your concern about. That's the a leg- good
0: point. No, that's a very very good point.
1: Now, the question of whether or not a legislator is necessarily qualified to exercise his judicial office or legislative authority is another matter. But hopefully, like our legal system, it would it would allow and still provide- there is
0: always the danger if the legislator is not just that he might try people according to what he meant for the law to be
1: instead of what the law is. Uh, that is true, although I think it's more often a case that you get executives attempting to enforce the law as they wish it had been written rather than Yeah, than for sure. Too,
0: no doubt. That is very, very true.
1: Um, and, and I mean, again, there the legislator becomes the ultimate interpreter of law because if, for example... Um, oh, this happened in the news this week, J.D. This is a thing. This is an actual thing that happened. I don't know if you've been following this story, um, but there's been some concern expressed. There was some concern expressed over attempts by the cardinal prefect of the Dicastery for Divine Worship to interpret the modu proprio traditionus custodes in, a, in an expansive manner that would have said that the general authority of the diocesan bishop dispensed dispense from universal ecclesiastical law, including papal modus proprio, like... Traditionist custodius, did not hold in that case because there was some sort of implied way in which um, the power to dispense had been specifically reserved to the apostolic see, although as subtext, question mark? And, um, and a canonist for whom I have some respect, some respect, uh, raised this in an analysis of the pillar, in fact, I think it was you, um, and pointed out that you can't, you know, the, the any any first-year canon law student um, can tell you about general norms and the general power dispense in canon 87 and the reservation of dispensing power to the apostolic see which must be explicit and things that touch parts of law like this have to be interpreted strictly and, da, 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 and it's all very very clear um and cardinal roach disagreed with you i don't know if you saw this but someone sent this to me on twitter that apparently he said um he accused you of astonishing hubris which I mean, in fairness, I I've done more <laughs> I did than pontificate once.
0: for a long time about whatever I was pontificating I'm about in this show, and I feel guilty about it. Not
1: saying I, I'm saying that I thought that was an unfair accusation with regards to your analysis, which I thought was very well reasoned <laughs> and on point.
0: I, I'm uh, often, as a canonist, actually a relatively insecure, insecure canonist, but not on this.
1: Not on that one. No, definitely yeah. not. And nor should you have been. Um, but uh, of course, he Cardinal Roach then appears to have uh, taken some other advice on his position, having insisted that you were wrong. Um, and then he decided to go to the legislator. And the legislator, of course, being Pope Francis, and Pope Francis fairly kindly uh, wrote him a note, uh, wrote him a hall pass, effectively, g- mm-hmm. granted him a special favor.
0: Yes. For right. that
1: is what a rescript is. It is a special favor, a dispensation mm-hmm. from the law, a privilege, uh, basically the right to do something different to what the law says. Well, a, re-
0: a rescript is a response. It can be a favor or a privilege or a dispensation.
1: Well, it, it has to be one of those. It is defined in the Code of Canon Law. A rescript is either a favor, a dispensation, or, or sorry, a privilege, a dispensation, right. or some of the right. favor. exactly,
0: yeah, right. The rescript is the response, and it grants one of those things. That's what i are saying. Yes, yes.
1: So, mm-hmm. um, so Cardinal wrote, went to Pope Francis, and and showed him his homework, and uh, basically Pope Francis wrote him a hall pass, and said you can you can interpret the law. Now the way you wanted to before, even though it doesn't say that. And so I'll write it out long form for you. And now, you know, now you can do that. Um, And that's an example of a bad interpretation of the executive which is then reviewed by the legislator who clarifies the mind of the legislator and recognizes that there was that a is gap. an
0: example of precisely that. That's a very good example. I love how you drove there. It's a very good example. And I'm really – I am looking forward to having a full – we decided not to talk – to have a full in-depth conversation about that this week because we had other things we wanted to talk about. But uh, I am looking forward to having probably a full and in-depth conversation about that. Really good example. I'm, it's really cool that you landed there actually uh, I, Totally
1: week. unintentionally. I didn't want to talk no, about just, um, Yeah, you, It was you who didn't want to talk about it actually. Yeah. But it, as it happened, it... it, it
0: all roads, know, Ed. All roads, it seems.
1: I, I was going to say, even in the most mundane and tedious of stories, J.D., you can sometimes find a, a useful way of illuminating the law. And in this case, <laughs> the separation of executive and legislative function in, at the highest levels of the governance of the church, this this suited that very, very well.
0: <laughs> Ed, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, and Ed and J.D. production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my illustrious podcasting partner and friend and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. We'll be back to talk about the executive, the legislative, the sublime, and the
1: ridiculous next week.